Well, two scripture passages this morning. Old Testament scripture passages, Jeremiah 31, verse 15 to 20. can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,226. We're also going to be reading Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 to 18. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,498. Turn with me now to Jeremiah 31, where we read that scripture passage this morning. Start in the reading in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord. The grain, the new wine, and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah. Mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy, so there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf. And I have been disciplined. Restore me and I will return because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Turning now to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. So often uh, during the Christmas season, we think of love, joy, peace, hope. So often during the Christmas season, we think of the Christmas spirit and how it's one that gives you a sense of warmth and fuzziness, hot cocoa and hot apple cider, a fireplace, a nice warm fire, 
It's, it's a positive feeling. You know, it tend to, tends to be that people are generally nicer during the Christmas season. Um, but uh, what we don't often think about is this particular part of the Christmas story. Um, we skip over these words. You know, Herod slew all the male children, two years old and under. Um, so much so that um, not too long ago, John Piper wrote a, a poem to encapsulate this uh, tension that comes during the Christmas season of, of not only this great happiness and joy, but also uh, of great suffering and mourning. Um, he called it The Innkeeper, and it's a, it's a fictional story. And it, basically, the concept of The Innkeeper is, um, what, what would it be like if Jesus, two weeks prior to his crucifixion, made a visit to the inn uh, where he stayed at when he was born in Bethlehem um, and visited with that gentleman? And what if that gentleman who offered his, um, his barn to this young couple um, had a young child as well? That was part of that group of boys that were murdered because Jesus had been born there. And this is, uh, this is the poem called The Innkeeper. I'd like to share it with you. Jake's wife would have been 58 the day that Jesus passed the gate of Bethlehem and slowly walked toward Jacob's inn. The people talked with friends and children played along the paths and Jesus hummed a song and smiled at every child he saw. He paused with one small last to draw a camel in the dirt then said, what's this? The girl bent down her head to study what the Lord had made. She smiled a camel, sir, and laid her finger on the bulging back where merchants buy in their leather pack. It's got a hump. Indeed it does. And who do you believe it was who made this camel with this hump? Without a thought this, that this would stump, the rabbi gilled and uh, be reviled. She said, God did, and Jesus smiled. Good eyes, my child, and would that all Jerusalem within that wall of yonder stone could see the signs of peace. He left the last with lines, a simple wonder in her face, and slowly went to find the place where he was born. Folks said the inn had never been a place for sin, for Jacob was a holy man, and he and Rachel had a plan to marry, have a child or two, and serve the folks who traveled through, especially the poor who brought their meal and turtle doves and sought a place to stay near Zion's gate. They'd rise up early, stay up late to help the pilgrims go and come. And when the place was full to some, especially the poorest, they would say, We're sorry, there's no room, but stay now if you like out back. There's lots of hay, and we have extra cots that you can use. There'll be no charge. The stable isn't very large, but Noah keeps it safe. He was a wedding gift to Jake because the shepherds knew he loved the dog. There's nothing in the decalogue, he used to joke, that says a man can't love a dog. The children ran ahead of Jesus as he strode toward Jacob's inn. The stony road that led up to the inn was deep with centuries of wear and steep. At one point, just before the door, the Lord knocked once, then twice before. He heard an old man's voice. Round back, it called. So Jesus took the track that led around the inn. The old man leaned back in his chair and told the dog to never mind. He had no one to tend the door, my lad, for 30 years. I'm sorry for the inconvenience to your sore feet. The road to Jerusalem is hard, ain't it? Don't mind old Shem. He's harmless like his dad. Won't bite a Roman soldier in the night. Sit down. And Jacob waved the stump of his right arm. 
We're in a slump right now. Got lots of time to think and talk. Come sit and have a drink from Jacob's well, he laughed. You own the inn, the Lord inquired. On loan, you'd better say, God owns the inn. At that, the Lord knew they were kin and ventured on. Do you recall the tax when Caesar said to all, the world that each must be enrolled, old Jacob winced, our north winds cold, our deserts dry, do fishes swim and ravens fly? I do. A grim and awful year it was for me when God ordained that strange decree. How could I such a time forget? Why do you ask? I have a debt to pay and I must see how much. Why do you say that it was such a grim and awful year, he raised the stump of his right arm. So dazed, young man, I didn't know I'd lost my arm. Do you know what it costs for me to house the Son of God? The old man took his cedar rod and swept it round the place, empty for thirty years alone, you see. Old Jacob, poor old Jacob, runs it with one arm, a dog, no sons. But I had sons once. Joseph was my firstborn. He was small because his mother was so sick. When he turned three, the Lord was good to me, and Rachel and our baby Ben was born the very fortnight when the blessed family arrived. And Rachel's gracious heart contrived the way for them to stay therein, that very stall. The man was thin and tired. You look a lot like him. But Jesus said, why was it grim? We got a reputation here that night, nothing at all to fear, and that we thought it was of God. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue? We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. Only time to see. A lifted spear smashed through his spine and chest. He stumbled to the sign that welcomed strangers to the place and looked with panic at my face as if to ask what he had done. Young man, you ever lost a son? The tears streamed down the Savior's cheek. He shook his head but couldn't speak. Before I found the breath to scream, I heard the words, a horrid dream. Kill every child who's two or less. Spare not for aught, nor make excess. Let this one be the oldest here. And if you count your own life dear, let none escape. I had no sword, no weapon in my house. But Lord, I had my hands, and I would save the son of my right hand. So brave, oh Rachel was so brave. Her hands were like a thousand iron bands around the boy. She wouldn't let him go, and so her own back met with every thrust and blow. I lost my arm, my wife, my sons, the cost for housing the Messiah here. Why would he simply disappear and never come to help? They sat in silence. Jacob wondered at the stranger's tears. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob, I will rise. And three days from the dead, and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. And I will raise with my life and breath your wife and Ben and Joseph too, and give them, Jacob, back to you. With everything the world can store, and you will reign forevermore. It's a, it's a good poem, if you like that sort of thing, because it, 
It communicates the message about Christmas that we don't often think about. And that is, Christmas brings life through death. And the reason why Jesus has a body is so that he can have all our sin poured out on that body and killed for us on the cross. And this moment of Herod sending his soldiers into Bethlehem so that all the children two years and younger can be slaughtered just so that he doesn't have to compete with another king that's arrived is a foretaste of the kind of pain and sorrow and grief that will give birth to life and resurrection. First the cross, then the crown. We go from magi visiting and pouring gifts upon this child to a statement about a massacre of children. Christmas brings life through death. Let's look at this first point. Kill the boys, verse 16. So Herod instructed the magi to come and to tell tell him where this boy was, um, but they didn't do that. They were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so when Herod discovered that the magi had outwitted him, that they hadn't come and told him, hey, the boy is living here at this address, um, he was furious. And because he was so filled with rage and because he wanted to be the king, he wanted to be God, he didn't want there to be another God, he decided that what he was going to do was to just make sure that he had covered his bases. And so he sent his soldiers into the village of Bethlehem And its vicinity, and he instructed them to kill all the boys that were two years old and under. And that was to make sure that Jesus would be one of these children. Except the fact that Joseph had been warned in a dream that Herod intended to do this, and they were instructed to leave and to escape to Egypt. But it's very important that we understand that what is happening here in the life of Jesus is very, very similar to what is happening in the Exodus. Just like we've been already pointed to when uh, uh, Matthew said when Jesus went to Egypt and then he came out of Egypt, that that was a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I called my son. So also we should see in this moment that Jesus is recapitulating, he's living out the life cycle of Israel in the sense of, if you remember, that when Israel was in Egypt and when Joseph finally died, right, and there was another Pharaoh that came that did not remember Joseph. And this Pharaoh realized and saw that the Israelites were being blessed, that they were growing in Goshen, that they were multiplying. This Pharaoh thought, this is, a, this is a risk to me. This is a concern to me. And so what did he do? He instructed that all the male children be killed. Who escaped that? That punishment. Who escaped that? Um, condition. Moses. But when Moses was born, Moses was protected. And Moses becomes the Messiah of the people. But Moses, we find out, is a failure. Moses 
falls short. And Moses is the one that says, there's going to be a prophet among you that rises among the people. Moses is the one that was barred. He wasn't allowed to go into the promised land because of his disobedience. But Moses, Moses was pointing to a greater Moses. The coming of Jesus Christ. The coming of Jesus Christ. So just like Pharaoh functioning as the seed of the serpent, right? Sought to destroy the seed of the woman in Egypt. So in this moment, Herod, functioning as the seed of the serpent, seeks to destroy the seed of the woman in Bethlehem, recreating that moment in the history of Israel and pointing us to the reality that what that was pointing to was actually a greater reality, not Moses, but a greater Moses, the very Son of God, Jesus. But it also points us to another thing, and that is what I like to call the dark side of Christmas. There's a passage in Luke that's very similar to this. It's when Simeon tells uh, Mary that Christ has brought a sword, the sword of Christmas. And that this sword will even strike her very own heart. That Simeon is, 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 is praising the Lord because finally your salvation has arrived. I am holding your salvation in my arms. This very baby, this child. But this child is going to be one who is the, behind the rising and the falling of many in Israel. This child is going to be one that causes you pain, Mary. Because you love him, but he has come to die. You almost get the sense that here in the birth narrative, there is this shadow hanging over this moment of life. And that's the shadow of the cross. The dark side of Christmas is that Christ's arrival creates enemies. The dark side of Christmas is this reality that Christ's simple presence is a moment of clarification. You have a path to choose now, this way or that way. There is no middle ground. There is no fence sitting. There is no median path. This is where the line is drawn. There's a dividing line created by the arrival of Christ. Either you are for him or against him. And that is why when you read the Gospels, it can have such contrary statements like, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's what Jesus says, right? But then later on he'll say, I have come to, um, I've brought fire on this world and judgment. And he'll say, Because I'm here, father will be against son and mother will be against daughter. But also whoever loves me, whoever follows me, whoever believes in me will have so many fathers and mothers and sons and daughters in this life and the next. The dark side of Christmas is that Jesus' arrival is joy to the world 
the Lord has come, Jesus' arrival is an announcement of peace. But only if one receives it. Only if one receives it. And I'm just going to go ahead out on a limb and, and, and suggest and guess that Jesus' arrival is not received very positively by Herod. The dark side of Christmas is seen in this moment where Herod sends his soldiers to kill these boys. And Matthew does something very interesting. Uh, just like his quotation of Hosea chapter 11, out of Egypt I called my son, he shows here that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, quoting from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, a voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Um, we read that, Jeremiah 31. And we read it to give it context. Because just like, um, just like Jesus is pointing out and revealing his connection to the story of the Exodus, right? Also, Jesus' arrival is meant to be connected to the story of exile. Because exile is simply a retelling of the story of the Exodus, Right? In the story of the Exodus, the people of Israel are trapped and enslaved in a land that is not their own, that they've not been promised. And so God, he brings them out of that land into the promised land, right? Well, the story of the exile is simply this. They have forsaken their right to the land because of their sin, because of their corruption, because they've turned away from God. But God then sends them in judgment out of the promised land into exile, into a, a land that's not their own, where they live and they continue to go on as a community. And God saves a remnant and that that remnant is going to be brought back to the promised land. Okay? And so a lot of the story of Jeremiah is this. You sinned. You did bad. You deserve judgment. This is what the judgment looks like. But then also, a promise of restoration. A promise of restoration. And so that's why Jeremiah 31, God says in verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. Right now you think of my people as a shameful people who do not deserve the name of Yahweh. Who does not deserve to be covenanted to Yahweh. Why? Because I have judged them and I have sent them away from the promised land. But you will know that I am God when I restore them. And this is what he says. He who scattered Israel will gather them and watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will ransom Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They'll be like a, a well-watered garden. They'll sorrow no more. There will be dancing. There will be joy instead of sorrow. 
This is what God is saying. I brought judgment upon you. I brought curse upon you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring blessing. Right? But right now, where they're at, when Jeremiah is speaking to them, they're in exile. They are not yet the recipients of this restoration. They are not yet recipients of these blessings. They are still in the midst of exile and judgment. They are still trapped in a land that is not their own. That's why I wanted to sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, because that song is filled with that kind of sorrow, right? That longing for the restoration. And so this is what they say. A voice heard in Rama, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. Everything has been taken from us. We are stripped down to the bone. We have nothing left. All our children are killed and murdered. Weeping. Mourning. This is the death that Christmas speaks of. The reality that Christ had to come and be born as a baby speaks to our condition. We are sinners living in a cursed world, broken world. And that should fill us with a sadness and a sorrow. We should weep with Rachel. But this is what the Lord says to our weeping, to our mourning. Stop it. Wipe your tears from your eyes, for your work will be rewarded. You will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. And then God enters into this moment of speaking to Israel like a son, just like in Hosea chapter 11. I have surely heard Ephraim's mourning. And Ephraim says, you disciplined us like an unruly calf. We've been disciplined. The Lord, restore us now and return to us because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, after I repented, after I came to understand, I beat my breast. I repented. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. And God says, it's not Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight. Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Many of you maybe don't even know this part of Jeremiah 31. But Jeremiah 31 is a very important passage in the Bible, because it tells us of the new covenant. That the fulfillment of this promise of restoration and blessing is not ultimately the fact that in 70 years the people will return from Babylon to 
Jerusalem to Israel to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. That is not the ultimate fulfillment of this promised restoration. The ultimate fulfillment of this promised restoration from curse to blessing, from judgment and condemnation to grace and to mercy. Is this, the time is coming, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The New Testament authors quote Jeremiah 31 in correlation with what Christ's work has accomplished. Yes, Christ's arrival brings with it a crossroads. Yes, Christ's arrival brings with it sorrow and pain and judgment and death for these children caught in the crossfire. But Christ's life also brings through death Eternal life, forgiveness of sins, an inheritance that it goes so far beyond the little promised land in the Middle East, it includes the entire world, a restored world, a new heavens and a new earth, a place where we as the people of God can rest eternally with God in the presence of God and Jesus throughout all time and space. That is what is given to us because Christ came, was born, lived, and died, was resurrected three days later, and ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father, and will come again. Christmas brings life through death. Even though we know that Christ came in humility, He left in exaltation, and he comes back King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes back to make us heirs with him of all that the Father has given him. And we will reign with him forever. So even though in this life we might experience loss, For the sake of Christ. We will know one day. That all is gain. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father. We thank you for this word. We thank you Lord. That even though there is a dark side of Christmas. Even though for many. Christmas is a time of mourning. Of uh, loss. 
of a hardship. Lord, we know that because of Christ, we will have life after death. We will have life through death. That it is through humility that we are exalted. And that it is through the death of Christ that we are given newness of life. And we're so thankful, Lord, for that beautiful and wonderful gift, the most important gift, the best gift of all. New life in Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that we would know more of it this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.